Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. I am Jensen Beeler, but I am not your host for this week's show. Instead, I am usually the person behind the scenes putting the show together and editing it. I did want to leave a quick note, though, before we got started. Obviously, we just found out about Nikki Hayden's bicycling accident in Italy. On behalf of the entire Paddock Pass podcast crew, we wanted to extend our best thoughts to Nikki Hayden and his family in this difficult time. We also wanted to let our listeners know that this show was recorded before Nikki's accident. And at some points, David and Steven will discuss what's going on in the World Superbike paddock for Nikki and the Honda World Superbike team. We hope you will keep that in mind when you listen to the show. And we also hope that you'll keep Nikki in your thoughts during this difficult time. Keep strong, Nikki. We hope to see you back in the paddock soon. And until then, we'll get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is David Emmett of MotorMatters.com and with me is World Superbike commentator extraordinaire Stephen English. And how are you, Steve? I'm very good, David. Right, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the what happened at the World Superbike race at, at Imola and uh, look back at Aston as well a little bit. Steve, it was a long, pretty long weekend for you because of a lot of, well, a lot of uh, red flags and on-track excitement and off-track excitement as well yeah definitely david it was definitely a long sunday probably the longest sunday i've ever had and uh, it seemed like we were we were on air for pretty much the whole day but uh, we had good racing throughout the weekend and all four classes really gave something interesting to talk about there were plenty of talking points afterwards uh, it was a pretty impressive performance by uh, Chaz davies at uh, at imola but that's hardly unsurprising i sort of had uh, i had Chaz davies down to win um, uh, to do well uh, at imola this uh, this weekend because obviously that close to ducati's factory in bologna there's a lot of pressure there i saw a lot of the top brass of ducati in the uh, in the Aruba Ducati garage. Yeah, and uh, I got a bit of a surprise one in the mornings whenever I was just coming out of my hotel room and uh, on the room opposite mine, Gigi Lini is just walking out as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they basically had everyone down this weekend and Yamaha was the same. Lynn Jarvis turned up for a day and, you know, it just shows the importance that everyone's placing in the championship again. And, uh, you know, speaking to Delinia, he did say that, uh, as usual, Imola and Mizano were the two key rounds for everyone from Ducati to to come down to and uh, definitely they, they got their 50 points and a stock thousand victory so they went back to Bologna pretty happy but it was a, a key indicator again just of how much importance Ducati are placing in the championship. Obviously Chas Davis has had a couple of difficult results he's had how many DNFs has he had one two DNFs already? Uh, two DNFs for Chaz, and then you also had the crash in Thailand as well that cost him some points. Yeah, exactly, which is uh, has really put him on the back uh, back foot and puts him a long way behind Jonathan Ray. Yeah, with uh, Jonathan Ray, like when you look at his season so far, Ray's basically had a perfect run through the campaign. You know, he's only dropped fifteen points, so if he doesn't win, he finishes second, and that's why he's got uh, that seventy four points over Chaz Davis. And really, as we've seen time and again the last couple of years, if you give Jonathan an inch, he takes a mile. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you can't fault the way that he's been riding. He, you know, as you say, if he doesn't win, he finishes. Uh, he finishes second, and he doesn't finish second uh, that often either. Uh, again, D- D- Davies, who's really his only real uh, opponent, it seems like. I mean, Tom Sykes is. Um, has given him a, a has taken the fight to him a couple of times, but hasn't really been able to uh, to mount a consistent challenge. He's been quite as strong as, as Davies, it seems to me. Yeah, definitely. Sykes has made quite a bit of progress over the winter just to bring himself a bit closer to Jonathan Ray. And indeed, 
we've seen with the grid reshuffle for race two that Sykes has made progress in being able to get through the field and get back to the front. But uh, yeah, definitely overall, he just hasn't really been able to match Ray or Davis, even though in the championship at the moment, he's only a point behind Davis. He's got as many podiums as Davis, but it just always looks like it's that little bit tougher for Sykes compared to the other two. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly been interesting seeing the uh, the way that the grid reshuffle has worked. I mean, we're, we're now five rounds in, uh, and yet every single podium place has been owned by either a, uh, a Ducati or a uh, Kawasaki. Both Davies and, uh, well, Davies, Ray and Sykes have all started uh, from the third row. Uh, well, I suppose most of most of the time in the second in the second races, they've they started from the uh, uh, from the third row, from seventh, eighth, or ninth, and yet it, it hasn't stopped from from slowing down. I think the the difference to me has been the the ease with which Ray comes through uh, comes through the uh, the the field. It's made the first five or six laps pretty exciting, but um, uh, you know, in the end, it's general Jonathan Ray has just been outstanding at actually cutting through the field. Yeah, definitely, David. As you said, the four Ducati and Kawasaki riders have shared the podium between them so far this year, and they're the men that we've seen qualify onto that third row for race two. But um, with uh, you know Jonathan Ray, he's consistently been able to pick up three positions, four positions off the line, pretty much the same as Chaz Davis. But once they come into that first couple of corners, that's where we've seen Jonathan just make the moves a little bit easier at times. And I think Aston was probably your best example of that, where Jonathan was able to get through to the front of the field. Chaz took a little bit longer. I think he spent a lap behind Xavi Fares or someone like that. And it took him that lost time just meant that uh, his progress stalled a third on the podium rather than being able to fight for the win, which he was able to do the day before. There was plenty more to talk about at Aston, especially the first race at Aston, where Davies looked like he was uh, he was lining Ch- uh, Johnny up for uh, for a pass on the last lap. The bike dies on him um, with just over a lap to go, which was absolute heartbreak. Yeah, and it, that all sort of got set up from the Super Bowl session a couple of hours earlier, where you know we saw just uh, how much each of those riders were we're putting into the championship. We saw how much it meant for both of them. And then the heartbreak, as you said, for uh, Chaz Davis, just to basically have it taken away from him in that uh, final lap, just with a mechanical failure. But uh, I think in that race, it would have taken a lot for Chaz to beat Johnny. But those 20 points could have made, you know, a fair bit of difference in terms of whether you're looking at the championship or just uh, being into that second position for Chaz a little bit more comfortably right now. Yeah, I mean the difference between trading by over seventy points and trading by fifty points is uh, is, is extremely significant. Still, with eight races left, which is uh, hang on, what's that? Two, three, two hundred points. That's that. That would make a serious. Uh, it would make a serious difference. It's still a major challenge, but oh, it'd be a lot less difficult than than what he faces uh, than what he faces at the moment. You were um, in Park Ferme, obviously doing the doing the interviews between Johnny and Jazz. The, it must have been a little bit. Uh, the the atmosphere must have been a little bit. Awkward, awkward, or, or great, David. It depends <laughs> on what way you're looking at it. I was, I was standing down basically for our position for where we are is at the very end of all of the the TV cameras, and uh, it's about as far away in Park Fermi as you, you can get from any other point. But uh, I was sitting there just uh, waiting for whoever to come over to me for the interviews, and usually you get a countdown from the director just saying, "Okay, Steve, we're gonna go to you know." Chaz in five, four, and then he'll start walking over and then you do your interview. But I'm standing there and it's, it's taking a long time. And you're kind of thinking like, what, what's going on? Like, you know, surely, you know, we've we got the, the program to keep to and all that. And then I turn my head a little bit and uh, just behind like all of the, the cameramen, all the reporters who are all craned across, you can just start to see 
the beginnings of what was happening with Davis and Ray. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it made for great. Uh, great TV and great entertainment. Also, I think it was because there's there is this idea that um, uh, you know in World Supers it's all um, uh, you know it's all friends. Uh, you know they're all they're all a bunch of uh, of English speaking blokes who are all good mates, and that is absolutely not the case with Davies and Ray because it it was quite clear that there's no love lost between those two. Uh, Davies was understandably uh, in well certainly in my view it was understandably extremely. Um, extremely annoyed with Ray. I also saw he posted a he posted a response to or a, an explanation for his outburst on Facebook, which I thought was was extremely well written and extremely lucid and clear, uh, and made it very very clear why why he said what he wanted to say. Yeah, it was also about as long as one of your Sunday race reports, Dave. <laughs> but that's uh, why I liked it. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, Chaz went into a lot of detail about what he felt had happened in that situation. And in fairness to him, race control agreed Jonathan was given a penalty. But uh, Chaz felt that uh, he'd been blocked on a fast lap intentionally by uh, Ray on the way into one of the fast chicanes. And Chaz was not on a faster lap on the lap where he was held up, but he was only a couple of hundredths of a second off of his fastest time through the first two sectors. So even though he wouldn't have been able to challenge for pole with the time, he probably would have been right there or thereabouts in terms of being able to improve in his time. So, yeah, rightly feeling aggrieved about it. And then obviously down in Park Verma, he made that pretty clear. And even out in track, he made it clear as well whenever he, he swiped yeah. across at Jonathan's arm as well. Now, whether or not there was contact with, between the two riders at that time is actually still up for debate as well, because apparently there is some footage that shows that maybe there wasn't contact with them and different things like that. But there was an intent there just to remonstrate. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, it, it looked exactly the same as Casey Stoner's kick to Randy Napunier at Le Mans, which would have been, oh, what, 2009, 2010? I can't remember if it was uh, when it was on the Ducati or the uh, or, or the Honda at the time, but it was very much the same idea. Yeah, thank God it's that kick that you're talking about, David, as opposed to... <laughs> um, I, think, I think, you know, it was pretty much the same kind of thing as what happened with Stoner as well, where, you know, you try and... Uh, just grab the attention of the other writer. And, uh, you know, for for Chaz and Johnny, I think we've seen it time and again over the last few years. You, know, you can't you can't compete for championships. You can't compete for race wins and keep that cordial relationship. You know, if you look at last year, they shared 20 wins between them. 2015, it was 19 wins between the most of them for Jonathan in 2015, obviously, considering he, he was dominant that year. And then so far this year, I think it's seven for Johnny and three for Chaz. You know, you, when you're the two the two riders to beat in any championship, it's pretty hard to just keep that kind of... You, you keep your respect for each other, but uh, to keep your emotions in check is a different thing. Yeah, the, 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 the kind of intensity needed to win a championship means that you're just focused on just one thing. You're just focused on winning and it becomes extremely difficult to... Uh, uh, to maintain that level of intensity and, and still, you know, be besties with uh, all of these people. And to be frank, the, we don't really need them to be besties. We want them to uh, not like each other because it makes the, uh, the the racing more interesting and more intense. It adds it adds something for uh, for for the fans as well. I think. Yeah, definitely. When you when you look at uh, right, the Isle of Man TT starting up in a week's time, and they've got two different programs, one with a Hutchinson cover and one with a Dunlop cover. And it's just like, <laughs> pick your side. And, and that's what we want in, in racing in a lot of times. We want the riders to respect each other out on track. Yeah. We want them to we want them to come back into Park Fermi and, 
you know, have that have that that edge to each other, have that edge to the relationship. Because you know, for someone like Chaz that's ridden so well over the last couple of years, to not have that title, not have as many race wins as maybe he would have had in a different era in Superbikes, that's got to be tough for him. Yeah. And this was just uh, this was just that spark that set it off, you know. And then he went out in race one at Aston and he rode a stormer, you know. You know, obviously the mechanical failure at the end cost him any chance of taking the win but you know we put the fight to Ray and it was it was great because you know I went down to the grid and uh, you're getting ready for the start of the race and you're trying to get a couple of interviews and things like that but there was real excitement and tension down on the grid which you know you haven't really seen that too much lately in, in World SBK yeah, it was definitely a little bit of a spark that was needed to shake things up a, a little bit. Uh, but like we said, I mean, Davies, uh, Davies got um, uh, got his revenge at Imola by by winning really, really convincingly in both races by uh, by by a big margin, uh, getting pole too. Yeah, and Davis was pretty much half a second a lap faster than everyone else in Imola. If you look at the first race, the red flagged race, he finished at about seven seconds clear in a twelve lap race. And then on Sunday's race two, he got to the front about halfway through the race and in the next nine or 10 laps opened up four or five seconds. So he pretty much had that half second in hand for the whole weekend. And we, you don't tend to see that too often in, in Superbike race. And even with uh, Jonathan Ray clocking up as many race wins as he has over the last few years, he hasn't been, you know, five, six, 10 seconds of a lap faster than everyone else. He's just been consistently that little bit faster. But this was, you know, real dominating stuff from Davis. Uh, I mean, does it? do you think that Davies could be that much faster or could be that, that dominant at, at, at other tracks as well? Because, you know, I was I expecting him to be a little bit stronger at, uh, at Aragon, but he didn't quite... He, he won the, the, the second race, but, you know, he, he just didn't have it in the first race. Yeah, Aragon was, was definitely a strange one for a lot of people because I think, you know, we did all expect uh, Davis to go in there and basically continue the form he had there last year. But the Ducati didn't seem to be working quite as well there this year for whatever reason for him, and uh, it just didn't quite click. But uh, Imola was one that it did click. And as he said himself, it's the first time all year where everything sort of worked smoothly for them. They had the best bike on the grid, and they went and got the win. And that's uh, you know that's what Ray's done for most of the season. Kawasaki's been able to maximize their bike better than Ducati have been able to do. And you know the first time that Davis felt that he, he had that bike was at Imola picks up the two wins and now we have to move on to Donington where obviously the Kawasaki's have been really strong there over the last few years Tom Sykes he hasn't been beaten about four years there so this is the real test for Davis if you remember back to the last season he had a crash well two crashes at uh, Donington and it really did uh, put paid to a lot of his title campaign between there and the Mizano round. Uh, yeah, exactly. So the most important thing is to stay on and um, make sure that score some points. Uh, I mean, the other thing is we have, uh, you know, Jonathan Ray versus uh, Tom Sykes. And so, you know, as you say, Sykes has been incredibly strong at, uh, at Donington, but can uh, can, can Ray now uh, uh, beat Sykes at, uh, at Donington, you think? Yeah, for sure. If you look at uh, last year, Ray came very close to doing that, even though he couldn't, you know, he couldn't backshift without finding a neutral, it seemed, at one stage. But uh, he definitely, he's earmarked this one out as a key race for him. If you remember back to our season preview, I think it was myself, yourself and Neil were on the show for that one. And we both were talking about how Jonathan Ray at the November test last year at Hareth said to me and Neil that, uh, you know, Donington was 
around that he'd circled on the calendar because he knows how important it is for Sykes to keep winning there. And uh, Jonathan obviously then also knows just uh, what kind of difference that would make for uh, Sykes mentally to be beaten there. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be it's going to be sort of decisive in that uh, in that relationship between the two of the uh, between the two of them. Um, the dominance of the Ducatis and Kawasaki's has sort of cast a bit of a shadow over the rest of the racing. Uh, it's made it pretty tough on some of the uh, some of the other riders. Uh, I think my, uh, Michael van der Mark had quite a good second race at, uh, at Assen, finishing fourth. But um, it's still only fourth. It's still not a um, uh, it's it, it's still not a podium, and that's really what they were hoping. Um, it doesn't look like. I mean, Yamaha have been going well. Uh, Leon Camia had an absolutely outstanding ride at at Imola there is sort of potential there but just it doesn't look like they're capable of actually you know interfering and getting on the getting on the podium right now if you were to look at things in terms of that midfield battle it's quite close between you know Yamaha MV you know Aprilia can make a step and get there Honda need to make a big step Jordi Torres on the BMW is always liable to come up with you know top five finish and things like that but uh, I think Yamaha's probably made a bigger step than the rest of them and they've put themselves into that position where they are the best of the rest and that's why between Lowe's and Vandermark I think they've got five or six fourth place finishes this year so they are just on that cusp of being able to maybe pick up a podium but uh, you know right now there's just such a big gap between Kawasaki and Ducati and the rest of the field in terms of the resources they put into the championship and that's that's really why you you see that uh, gap between the rest of the field and, and the leaders. But Imola also magnifies that gap. Every issue you have with your bike seems to be put under a spotlight in Imola. And, uh, you know, that didn't help the matters for anyone chasing Ducati and Kawasaki. Speaking of which, the news broke at uh, at Imola that World Superbike are looking at uh, perhaps a spec ECU or some form of concessions at um, for for World Superbikes next year. Were you were there? What did uh, what did you hear about uh, about it? Talk of the paddock on on Saturday and Sunday that uh, we might have something something coming that uh, will try and equalise the field. Now, whether that's with the spec ECU, which was initially what everyone was hearing or whether it's with concessions, which is probably the more logical way of doing it, is uh, is up for discussion. But uh, definitely at Imola, there was a lot of a lot of talks between the different manufacturers just about uh, trying to find some sort of agreement. I think there's been a consensus that something needs to be changed, but uh, no uniform agreement on what change that will be. For me, I think concessions are probably the best way to go because I don't think electronics are going to solve it. You know, People will talk about, uh, you know, in MotoGP, it made a big difference in that. But there's also, in MotoGP, you had a year where you changed to Michelin tires. You have more resources in the satellite teams in MotoGP than you do in World Superbikes as well. And I think if you were to bring in a spec ECU in Superbikes, Kawasaki and Ducati still have the best electronics guys. So I don't think it would make that big of a difference. To an extent, you see the same discussion in um, uh, in MotoGP, uh, not so much between the factories, because, for example, it's made a ab- massive difference for Suzuki. It's helped Suzuki a lot, uh, not having to spend so much on um, on electronics, but it's still felt, certainly by the satellite teams, that factories still have a huge advantage because they have, you know, they've got three data guys in the um, in the garage plus a lorry full of um, a, a truckload of, of electronics engineers further back sorting out you know working on strategies working on what is possible and that's that, that makes it that little bit easier for them 
Yeah, and David, if you remember back to the first time Bradley Smith stepped off the KTM and came to talk to us, the first thing that he said to us was, Jesus, there's a lot of people in that ba- in that garage yeah. now compared to Tectois. And that's the difference that, that, that it makes between having those resources and, and being able to make progress. And that's what Kawasaki and Ducati have. Yamaha's getting a bit more of that. But uh, when you look further down the field, you know, Honda don't have that. So bringing in a spec ECU isn't suddenly going to make the Fireblade a much better package. The concessions, again, it's definitely a good idea. But the thing is, some of those concessions uh, or the, the difficulty around those concessions is, you know, if you're going to allow more testing, uh, then the poorer teams are not testing, not because they, you know, they're not allowed to, but because they don't have the resources to actually have the money to to actually go and do it. Yeah, they also don't have anything new to test as well. Yeah, you know, that's like talking to Leon Camier, he was saying like, you know, we could test till the cows come home, but we don't actually have new parts. Yeah. So what's the point of going testing with that? But that's where maybe I, I think that like if you could have some sort of situation where, you know, maybe you can run split throttle bodies, maybe you can run, you know, you can have more engines through the season. Honda's already had a few engine issues for Nicky Hayden this year, so Last year, of course, they did run out of engines and they could end up in a similar situation this year. And again, that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, is it really making that big of a difference whenever, you know, a manufacturer is trying to get competitive and uh, they're not able to they're not able to run for 26 races through the year without thinking in terms of engine mileage? Yeah, I think it's definitely um, uh, the, the the engine freeze has actually been something which has worked really, really well in, um, in MotoGP because it does mean that... Um, uh, the factories have to get their engines right, or at least you know the successful factories have to keep get their engines right at the start of the year. And if they don't, um, then they are they're in trouble. Basically, they they have to try and fix it with the, with the, the the resources they have, and that allows uh, certainly Suzuki. If you look at the, the 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 step which Suzuki made last year, for example, um, they made a really really big step with uh, uh, with engines. Uh, did look at what KTM are doing with their uh, with their engines, I think they're on their third uh, third engine configuration already this year, third or fourth this year. Um, so yeah, that's 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 given them a lot of uh, uh, a lot of room to well, a lot of a lot of room to play around with. Yeah, definitely. I think you know that's one of the things that's actually definitely been a big influence on MotoGP. If you look back to 2015, obviously Honda made a mess of their engine and they spent the whole year trying to figure it out, and. Uh, they didn't figure it out you know and i think in in world superbikes you know you're you're able to make engine changes through the season so maybe that's something that they should look at maybe where if you're one of the successful manufacturers you do have to homologate an engine at the start of the year other teams are able to make changes to theirs you know there's a lot of different ways that they can do it and it's i think the important thing would be it's not just uh let's just follow the lead of moto gp because moto gp had all these winners last year because you know 2016 is going to be an outlier for MotoGP. You know, 2017, we could probably have, let's say, six winners or whatever it's going to be. But these are those kind of years that uh, they're going to fall outside of the statistical mean. So don't use these as your guidelines for how to develop regulations. You can't overstate just how important the change to Michelin tyres was last year. That had a really, really massive impact. So, yeah, that that to me, I think, is is really important in terms of the nine winners we like you say we're not going to have nine winners this year we might have five or six but uh, but we shall see but you know five or six winners in in world superbikes would be um would be uh, quite a nice surprise but first you've got to find a way to slow the uh, the kawasaki's and the ducatis down 
Yeah, and it's it's that thing about do you want to slow them down or do you want to just make everyone more competitive relative relative to the Kawasaki? Ducatis? Yeah, I, I think I think slowing them down is the wrong for is the wrong terminology. I think the the the, the way to think of it is not so much slowing them down as um, uh, giving the rest a chance to actually catch up if they're prepared to uh, to uh, to put in the resources. It seems to me also that um, uh, and I mean like. I haven't spoken to, to to very many people inside Dorna about this, but I, whenever I have, they don't seem to be particularly delighted with the fact that Kawasaki are pouring all this money into World Superbike and ignoring MotoGP because you know MotoGP is where where factories are supposed to go racing. But um, uh, Kawasaki have shown absolutely no intention or interest in going racing in uh, uh, in MotoGP after they had their fingers burnt so very badly the first time around, where they were spending sixty five million euros a year to you know run around in sort of 10th 8th uh, 9th uh, place yeah and I think for um, Kawasaki one of their key things that they've always said about why they go to superbikes is they want to develop electronics they see that it, it passes all the way down to their road bikes and superbike well world superbikes right now is the only championship where you can really do that so they see a real you know, a long-term investment in the championship on the basis of this improves our racing breed, doesn't cost the same as what MotoGP does, so that's why they're looking to do it. But that also brings into account uh, other factors that could work against them as well, where they're not in MotoGP, so maybe, you know, if they if they make some threats, they're not going to be taken quite as seriously as if another manufacturer does. Yeah, but I mean, I uh, I think uh, I've had... Uh, well, the bosses of at least two and maybe three factories uh, tell me outright when I ask them uh, if MotoGP goes to spec electronics, uh, will you quit the series? They'll all say, "Well, yeah, well, for if there's if there's you know if we go to spec electronics, there's really not much point in us being in MotoGP. Uh, we really don't want to do it." And yet, you know, Honda is still there despite Nakamoto being very very vocal about uh, electronics being the main reason they were racing there. Uh, uh, Suzuki came back after they said. You know we're going to lose. We're going to. You know we, we could never tolerate. There would be no point in racing if there's uh, spec electronics. Uh, uh, Ducati, Yamaha. You know they're all they're all still there because the thing is the, the they learn so much more than than just electronics there. Yeah, and that's the thing you know. And and the the power in most of these kind of negotiations ends up with the series. Yeah. Because the manufacturer needs to sell bikes. They need to market their bikes. And they need to be successful and uh, whether or not they're able to do that in another championship can be debated till you know till the end of time really but uh, you know if they found a championship that works for them chances are they're going to stick with it yeah exactly it's Beck electronics isn't it's not a silver bullet for necessarily for cutting costs teams will or factories will spend whatever budget they can screw out of their management and so um they, they'll just spend it in different in different areas which is how come we saw the aerodynamics war all of a sudden take off yeah, and I think it's also worth noting as well that seeing, as I said, about how you know last year isn't the kind of year to use as a guideline for building regulations. Jonathan Ray's success over the last few years and the Kawasaki and Ducati gap to the rest of the field, again, that's not an indicator of what we've seen as being that norm in superbike racing. So, you know, to try and make reactions just based on this is also another one of those things that maybe isn't the the ideal scenario to be thinking in terms of because it can easily turn around pretty quickly. You only have to look at uh, for MotoGP for six, seven years. It was basically Valentino Rossi winning 11, 12 races a year. 
and then suddenly you know the rest of the field catches up and it all changes again and that could easily happen in superbikes there is a there is a need for the likes of honda to put in more resources we probably need to see hrc there as opposed to honda europe and the tankati team but uh you know i think it could easily turn around pretty quickly just with those increases in uh, resources being made available to honda yamaha aprilia and to a lesser extent bmw and mv yeah uh, but, uh, talking about sort of some of the other manufacturers because it does seem like yeah, Yamaha have made a step up in uh, in resources and they are uh, as you said they are now best of the rest and they need a, a little step forward to get onto the uh, uh, you know to start getting podiums more often um, and, well MV, MV Augusta are just poor and don't have any money uh, Aprilia have stepped up their involvement and you, that is starting to you're starting to see a little bit of that uh, uh, of that payoff I think uh, Eugene Laverty talked about having changed the balance of the, of the bike where uh, and that's and having new parts which is going to help him be more competitive um, uh, in the second uh, in the second half of the race um, Honda unfortunately are stuck with uh, with an old bike um, and are going to be stuck there until they actually bring out that V4 which they keep on uh, well which, which they keep promising to bring but never seem to actually manage to launch yeah, and of course, like with Honda, I think it's been pretty clear just uh, this season just how much work they still need to do. As you said, David, um, you know, when you talk to like you've you've known Nicky Hayden for a long time, and uh, I don't think I've ever seen him this vocal about issues that he's having. You know, every every day it's the same kind of same kind of story, and you know he wants more people in the garage, he wants more resources, and it doesn't really look like it's forthcoming. He finds himself down, and I think Nicky's. 13th, 14th in the championship, just behind Stefan Bradle. So, you know, both of those guys seem to be pulling in with the same lap time. It, the the time just isn't there. And uh, I think uh, they'll definitely have to make some sort of a change in the second half of the year, whether that is bring in another engineer, bring in an extra mechanic, because uh, they've definitely been losing a lot of time in sessions just with trying to get the bike ready. Yeah, it must also mean that uh, a few people will be looking around at uh, at new bikes, new opportunities. Um, uh, we've got, I mean, Nicky must be getting tired with uh, with running around at the back on the Honda. Uh, you have to wonder how uh, Tom Sykes feels about playing second field, uh, second fiddle at, uh, at at Kawasaki. There's uh, well, what happens at Yamaha? I think. Uh, uh, I think Michael van der Mark is um, uh, is on a two year contract. I think Alex Lowe's is on the his contract ends uh, um, this year or at the end of this year. So there are are we going to are we going to see a bit of an a bit of interesting silly season later on this year? Yeah, I think we're probably going to see silly season start a little bit early in Moto in World Superbikes this year, just because it doesn't look like there's too many MotoGP riders really on the radar to move across for next year so maybe superbikes just kicks off a little bit earlier than what we've seen in the past like if you were to look at the moto gp field it's only really sandro cortese in moto 2 that said he's got uh you know real interest in coming across to superbikes and i don't think there'd be too much interest in sandro cortese from you know the top teams in world sbk as well but i think that we're probably going to see quite a bit of change in the superbike field for next year obviously Chaz Davis has signed up with Ducati Jonathan Ray signed up with Kawasaki but the Davis one is always the one that's a little bit interesting because Ducati have left it open where maybe he moves to Pramac in MotoGP 
And uh, obviously that would then open up a prime seat in uh, World SBK. Because it looks like uh, Melandry's pretty much set in the uh, in the second seat at Ducati. Is that your uh, is that is that what you expect? Yeah, I'm not too sure if Melandry's actually under contract for next year, but uh, you know he's done a solid job. He's fourth in the championship. He's picked up, I think, six podiums in the uh, opening ten races of the year. He's he's doing a good job in his comeback, and he's been pretty competitive. So they won't really have much need to think about replacing a fast Italian that's been able to score a lot of podiums for them. So you'd imagine Melandri will be pretty safe. One of the big question marks is going to be maybe Ducati look to run a second bike with Barney because that was a rumour last year and uh, it came pretty close to happening as well with Saeed Al-Sayami um, funding that bike. But uh, it didn't end up happening. But uh, you know we could see something like that again uh, start to start to send some tongues wagging in the in the in the superbike paddock for next year, just because maybe Ducati. Obviously, they've got a, a long history with Nicky Hayden as well and MotoGP, fast selling bikes that were the Hayden specials for them as well. So they might be keen to look at someone like Nicky and the second seat at Barney might be the the ideal opportunity for that Hayden. Of course, he's just looking for something competitive, as you said, David. And uh, that could be an opportunity for him. When you look at Yamaha, you mentioned Michael Vandermark. Vandermark is under contract for next year. Lowe's contract is up. But, um, you know, are Yamaha going to look to make a change from the rider that's, you know, fifth in the championship at the moment and has pretty much consistently been able to finish in that uh, fourth or fifth position all the way through the season? Uh, yeah, I mean the only way uh, the the only way that uh, Yamaha moves from uh, the the rider who's sort of fifth in the championship is by moving to the rider who uh, to a rider who is ahead of him in the championship. So that that raises the question of whether Tom Sykes wants to keep on playing second fiddle to uh, the Jonathan Ray or whether he fancies his chances on a on another bike. Yeah, and uh, that was one of the the whispers that we heard around the paddock from uh, you know a couple of different rider managers just talking about. Uh, where they see things going for next year. And uh, Tom Sykes does have a second year on his Kawasaki contract. It was a two-year deal he signed last year. But uh, as you said, David, does does he want to keep getting beaten by Jonathan Ray? Because right now it's pretty clear he can't beat Jonathan. And Kawasaki is now geared around Jonathan as well. So, you know, that's a situation that, uh, you know, far from ideal for any rider. And maybe Sykes... Now he might look to for you know the final stage of his career, just look to bring up another manufacturer like he did with Kawasaki, you know, five six years ago. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, obviously, if he moves away, that's uh, the, that that second Kawasaki seat is going to be in very popular demand. Yeah, and uh, you know, to be a host of riders, obviously, the whole grid would pretty much be forming a, a very <laughs> disorderly queue down outside the rotors. But uh, you'd imagine that uh, you know if if they did look to move on from Sykes or if Sykes does leave, which again, you know, it's far from, far from concrete that that could even be, be the case. But if it does, the likes of Hayden, Lowe's, Jordi Torres has done pretty well. He's out of contract. Leon Camier's out of contract. And, you know, Camier's reputation speaks for itself at the moment because he's really excelled on that uh, MV Augusta, put himself into the shop window for a move to a better team. Maybe someone like for Camier, Maybe he starts thinking in terms of, well, maybe the Honda's an attractive proposition for him because long term it might be what offers more potential than uh, MV Augusta. But going back to Kawasaki, I'll throw a wild card into it, Dave. Go on then. What about Loris Baz? That's, that would be, um, that would be 
fascinating. That would be absolutely fascinating. I've heard one or two sort of rumours that Baz, I mean, uh, I think, uh, well, obviously we've got Zarco now uh, being absolutely tearing it up in MotoGP and so the seat is no longer needed because there is uh, real, uh, there's someone really competitive. But uh, Baz, uh, I, I mean, Baz has done reasonably well in, uh, in MotoGP, but he might fancy his chances uh, back in World Superbikes on a much quicker bike. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, Baz has definitely exceeded expectations and that's why he's been able to stay in grand prix for three years but uh you know this is this could be the opportunity that uh you know if it did transpire that way it'd be an interesting one kawasaki did actually really like working with him in the past and they thought he was a quick rider thought he was that potential rider to bring themselves forward but obviously Tom Sykes, I think, pretty much put his foot down after the 2014 <laughs> season, and that could that could be what ends up causing Sykes' demise at Kawasaki long term, just because they ended up bringing Jonathan Ray in. Yeah. But I think for someone like Baz, he's not going to leave MotoGP for anything other than pretty much guaranteed success in World SBK. Kawasaki offers him that. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there's there's a few wild cards. I think for next year, there's the first of all, there's the, the there's the new V4 Ducati. We know they're going to build it. We know it's going to be introduced at uh, at the Eichmer. But will they actually race it in World Superbike next year, or will they uh, uh, stick it in in Superstock for a season like they did with the Panigale in their uh, previous bikes? Yeah, you'd definitely be looking at 2019 for the V4 to be making its uh, World SBK debut, I'd say. What about the Honda? Do Honda actually bring this V4, which they've been threatening to build for, I think, the best part of 20 years? Or uh, or will it just, will it be a, a, another sort of, you know, a, a polished blade, a blade with them, um, uh, which has sort of been breathed on? Do you know what? That is the, the million dollar question at the moment, because Honda... You know, we've we've heard for so long about how you know this 2017 blade is going to be what brings Honda back to com- uh, competitiveness at the front of the field, but uh, it it certainly hasn't happened so far this year. And you know it, there was a, a few quips about turning up to a gunfight with a blade, and uh, <laughs> you know you're you're turning up with one hand tight behind your back at the minute with that bike. But I think that uh, I I actually had, I had a good chat with Gordon Ritchie from MCN at the weekend. And uh, Gordon made a good point that, uh, you know, if you think back to the last time the Honda really shook up the order in the World Superbike Championship, it was with the VTR when they went to the twin cylinder and they just came in full HRC effort and they dominated and then they left again, you know, and then they've gone to this kind of system they have now where it's a customer team with Tenkate or whoever else. And it's up to them to develop the bike. And it doesn't work like that anymore. You know, I think uh, if you were to look at Tenkati, they've shown time and time again that they're a really strong team that's been able to win championships. But it's a long time since they won a championship. Like you're going back to James Tozen 10 years ago. And the championships moved on a lot since then. Yeah, I mean, someone um, who used to be with the Honda team once uh, w- once told me that uh, HRC, or was certainly Shuhei Nakamoto, regarded every single penny which HRC spent on uh, on World Superbikes as basically stolen from his budget. Um, uh, and so he absolutely hated the World Superbike team. You have to think that, that HRC will uh, object to any form of, uh, uh, to any involvement in World Superbikes for as, for as long as possible. Quite possibly, but when you look at uh, the likes of when you've got Nicky Hayden, Stefan Bradle, obviously John McGuinness had his big crash at the Northwest 200. It's nothing but negative publicity about yeah. this new bike. Who wants to go out and buy a Fireblade 
when the best writers in the world are all struggling with it. And they'll need to do something with it because we heard the whole way through the launch season of this bike that it's the best superbike in, in, on the road. And it turns out on the track, it's not. Yeah, well, that, that, that is to an extent, that's one of the more interesting um, uh, things about uh, about world superbike racing because it you know it, it you are ra- you are racing road bikes on closed circuits and the requirements of road bikes i mean you don't have potholes on them on the, on closed circuits and you don't have curbs and you don't have bloody great ruts left by rubbish bin you know by by garbage trucks driving around uh, the the same route all the time so the 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 requirements for a for a track bike and for a uh, uh, and for a road bike are very very different so perhaps i mean I have no idea. I haven't ridden the thing on on the road, but just because the the blade might be good on uh, might be good on the road, doesn't mean it's going to be any good uh, uh, around a track. And but they really need, as you as you say, they're really going to need to uh, to to step it up. Yeah, and it's also that difference between you know what a road tester likes in the bike and what a racer needs at yeah. that highest level. But uh, you know, as I said, it's mostly just been pretty negative coverage for that uh, blade in terms of what they've been able to do on the track, and that's where you know they need to make something that uh, gives them that chance to move forward because right now as i said the likes of hayden and bradle in, in world sbk they're not uh you know they're not happy with the bike they're struggling with it and they're making their feelings pretty clear because again for the likes of nicky hayden this is a contract year he can't keep his mouth shut he needs to get his point across and uh, unfortunately, that point's just uh, not too positive for Honda. Yeah, and if they did lose uh, uh, Nicky Hayden, who is still arguably the biggest name in world superbikes, uh, certainly in America, you know, it's it's a massive market. That's the reason he's actually racing there is because Honda, uh, Honda America are prepared to, um, or American Honda are prepared to uh, to put some backing in behind him. Um, uh, if they lose Hayden from there, that's a big, that's a major blow for for American Honda and for for Honda around the world. Yeah, well, it it is actually pretty much solely funded just by Honda Europe, but the point still remains, Dave, that, yeah, Nicky Hayden is that big name. And, you know, when we go over to Laguna, it's pretty clear that he's still one of the biggest motorcycle racers in the world as far as the American audience is concerned. And when we go to pretty much any venue, when you go down for the, the pit lane autograph session, you know, everyone's there to get a picture with Nicky. Everyone's there to get something signed. And, you know, you can still see the draw that he has even at this stage. Yeah. Moving on a little bit, uh, World Superbikes, oh, sorry, World Supersport, there was sort of a few red flags for World Superbikes at, um, uh, at Imola, but World Supersport, the World Supersport class was completely dominated by them. They, had to, they, they took, what, three, three to, uh, to attempts to actually get the race started? Yeah, three attempts in the in the Supersport race. And uh, yeah, it really was a weekend of red flags. And we saw Chaz Davis... Uh, Paint the town red, basically, with Ducati dominance. But uh, unfortunately, it was all those red flags that uh, gave a lot of us just, uh, you know, a long day. But uh, in Supersport in particular, as you said, they even needed to stop the race, put the Superbike race on, and then put Supersport on after that. Um, such were the delays that they basically had to change the entire schedule. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, some talk, uh, I think, on uh, on British Eurosport. Sh- uh, uh, Shaky Byrne was saying that um, what was really needed would uh, would have been a uh, a safety car. Um, do you, I mean, from your perspective, would that have made much difference? You know, I like, uh, I do like the safety car in BSB, but, uh, and I think it probably would have made a, a fair difference this weekend in Supersport, but you're looking at, uh, you know, what works over the course of a full season and things like that. And, you know, I think in a, in a lot of cases, you'd end up red flagging 
instead of using safety cars. We've seen in BSB a few times where there's been, you know, I wouldn't say accusations, but there's been, you know, a little bit of innuendo about whether or not the safety car was needed yeah. as well. So you open yourself to, you know, another debate on it as well. But uh, I think definitely Imola, considering some of the red flags were just for removing gravel from the racing line and things like that, probably was a case that uh, we could have done something. But Imola is a strange one as well because we saw an awful lot of fluid on the track as well. Maybe that's the curbs, maybe it's something else. But we did see a lot of times where the marshals had to put down, you know, um, the compounds just to soak up the the fluid that's left by a crash bike as well. So maybe there's something else there that uh, you know we're not completely aware of as well. Yeah, and and though I think it was it uh, was it Ramos or um, whose whose engine blew up so spectacularly? Uh, I think in the first uh, uh, and Baldellini. Baldellini, yeah, there you go, Baldellini. I mean, uh, that there was um, uh, safety car wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have made any difference there. There was just oil all over the track, and there was a there was an awful lot of uh, of uh, of cement dust. Or well, it's not cement dust, is it? It's uh, some kind of specially absorbent material, I think, uh, uh, which the, which they put down. But uh, yeah, they, there was an awful lot of it there yeah it was actually Baldellini did it twice once in super sport super pole once in the race i think and that's what brought out red flags in those sessions it was Badavini in super bikes that did it and he had that huge blow up that caused a lengthy red flag as well so yeah it was just it, it, as i said imola was a little bit of a strange just confluence of circumstances as well that uh, definitely brought out pretty much the worst scenario possible for race control yeah, and also it, it was one of those things where uh, you've got sort of uh, when things you get a run of bad luck, and so you get all of a sudden you get sort of you know six red flags rather than just uh, just the one. And then uh, again, as we saw in Jerez, when Franco and Chini managed to completely stack the safety car into the side of the track, uh, having a safety car is no uh, not necessarily a uh, a uh, well, it's not necessarily going to save you. Yeah, and that's, well, I'll tell you what, there was one incident as well in 1994, I want to say, at the Japanese Formula One Grand Prix, where, David, you're already probably in despair at the mention of Formula One, but uh, there was, um, I think it was Taki Inouye or someone like that, he had crashed at uh, the S's leading up the hill, and uh, he had gotten out of his car, and a safety car, or a course car, came around the corner, aquaplaned, and hit him. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, I shouldn't laugh. That's pretty. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that would be extremely poor luck, I would think. Actually, I'll tell you what. That was there was two incidents. There was that one with Taki Inoue. I, I think maybe Inoue and Suzuka, but he did actually get hit by the safety car in Hungary. I think it was oh, as yeah. well. So it's you know it's it's easily it's easily it's easily done where you know we see the safety car as you know an ideal an ideal choice to to bring in in situations but if you've got a major engine blow up if you've got fluid on the track it's not it's not the answer always no so exactly. i think it, it's 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 a tough question to try and find a simple answer to really i think that's what emily showed us yeah, I, I think uh, what it also showed us is, is that Keenan Softwogel, who really benefited from the uh, uh, from the red flags, because he got uh, a fairly atrocious start in the first attempt at the World Supersport race, um, uh, a mediocre start in the uh, the second attempt, and then the the, the third attempt, he uh, well got a decent start and just ran away with it more or less. Yeah, pretty much. I think uh, it was, in a lot of ways, Keenan's the the first guy that's uh, picked up two wins. This season, we had had four different winners in the first four races. 
But uh, he definitely did take advantage of the, the restarts. I think in the first start, he dropped all the way back to eighth. The second start, he started fifth on the grid, got himself up into second by the time the red flag came out. And then in the third start, he was able to get himself clear at the front of the field. But, uh, you know, Safoglu, it was a tough weekend for him as well, though. Even without those red flags, his thumb was giving him a lot of problems. Imola is a much more physical track than uh, what we've seen at uh, the other tracks so far this year. And that definitely started to play on him. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a decent weekend for uh, for for PJ Jacobson, um, uh, but he ended up third uh, in the race. I think Lucas uh, Maia is the uh, is the real winner there, coming away with a very comfortable lead at the t- at the top of the championship. He's now got eighty five points, which is what twenty six twenty seven points uh, ahead of uh, second place man Sheridan Morais. Yeah, and I think uh, you know Lucas Maia through the season so far, he's just been consistent you know you look at uh, Thailand he had a non-score there I think I uh, can't remember off the top of my head but I think he had a mechanical problem there but uh, the rest of the season he's finished second he won one race and then three seconds so you know he's just been able to grind out those uh, those podiums and a lot like what we were talking about in terms of Jonathan Ray and World Superbikes that's just what Lucas Myers is doing now he's finishing first finishing second you know, and uh, if you're able to do that through the first half of the season, it gives you that buffer for the second half of the year. And, you know, Stefoglu has been able to, in the course of two races, get himself up into fourth in the championship. But he's got 35 points to make up. So he's going to have to rely on Myers having some sort of an issue in one of the upcoming races. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's 35 points, uh, 35 points left and eight races left, um, which would be, uh, it's not quite enough for Maya to uh, actually finish second in every race. Um, uh, but, you know, it's pretty close. There's certainly, there's a lot less pressure on him than there is on Sofuoglu. Yeah, seven races left in Supersport. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Because uh, we'll course. go to Laguna with it. But uh, even then, with 35 points, it's still not uh, not enough to be feeling all that comfortable with Keenan Safoglu, the man that's going to probably be chasing you down. But I think this season's been quite interesting so far, just because, you know, Myers, of course, is on the new R6. Sherrod Marias is on the old R6. They're the two top two in the championship. And uh, Marias is definitely surprised a few people, I think, with what he's been able to do this year on that older bike. PJ Jacobson you know, a podium at the weekend, but uh, just not quite clicking there for PJ. He's had two podiums this year, but uh, most of the season, it's just been a bit of a struggle for him. I think, you know, he probably should have been able to convert a dominant pole in Phillip Island into a race win. But uh, again, with a red flag, we had a shortened race and that really put him under pressure. He then went to Thailand and had an engine problem. So, you know, the last three races, really, that's where he's come back to, at least be you know relatively competitive again finishing in the top four in each of them but he definitely needs to make a big step forward and obviously of course he raced in Britain for a few years so maybe Donington's the round to to make that change yes he he knows the track so that's got to uh, that's got to certainly got to help um uh, uh but then you know both side well soft woglo in this sort of form is is a you know pretty tough to beat yeah well there's a reason why he's got his five titles yeah and uh Keenan's showing that again yeah exactly um finally a quick word on the uh, new super sport 300 class it certainly um um turned out to be sort of decent racing yeah i think uh super sport 300's been one of those classes where we've all been a little bit interested to see what's going to happen with it and i think you know this year it's actually gone pretty well i think that we've seen some decent racing and Ironically, Supersport 300 was probably the cleanest weekend 
the cleanest race that we <laughs> saw all the way through last weekend. But I think that, uh, you know, there's what's going to be interesting is to see what happens for for next year to see which riders are actually interested in doing it because there isn't there isn't that great depth in that field and no. uh, it'll just be it'll be key to see who's able to come across to the championship who wants to try and use it as a, a bit of a stepping stone because you know Scott Roo has picked up two wins so far this year and uh, you know maybe there is a case to be made that uh, that uh, you know Daru has shown what he can do at the world championship level and it'll be interesting to see where he sort of filters in after this season. Who gives him a shot? Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I spoke to um, uh, Robert Scottman um, uh, for quite a long time, who's on a Yamaha um, uh, earlier this year, and he was sort of like saying that he, his problem was previously that he was always uh, he came up just behind Bo Ben Snyder, and even though he was, you know, uh, whenever he raced Ben Snyder, he was they were fairly evenly matched because he was always one year behind him. It was always Ben Snyder who got the opportunities, and now Ben Snyder has the uh, has got a very good opportunity in um, uh, in the IO team in Moto Three, and so Scottman is uh, is taking this is almost like a an alternative route into the uh, into the world supersport uh, or into 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 world superbikes but it's going to be interesting to see who can actually move on from this uh, uh, from this class and move up into uh, well either su- super stock or world supersport yeah i think that's going to be the key thing obviously yamaha have got their blue crew initiative so whoever ends up being the top Yamaha rider in the class they're guaranteed a spot in the Supersport grid for next year for me looking at uh, what we've seen so far this season there are actually a couple of riders that have probably stood out a little bit Borja Sanchez has actually looked quite good on uh, one of the Hal Courier Yamahas I think uh, Mark Garcia of course won in Imola he's a a three-time Red Bull Rookies Cup winner as well so he's got a, a decent CV behind them and then, uh, you know, I think uh, one of the riders that's probably stood out the most in terms of, like, when you look at them on track is Mika Perez. He's got a, a crazy riding style, really. He's just elbows down at every corner on the really, you know, he's on the Honda. It looks massive, the bike, compared to the Yamahas. And you see Perez just, uh, you know, laying it down on, on, on his side and, uh, you know, almost getting his shoulder down half the time. <laughs> Whether that's fast on uh, a Super Sport 300 machine, you know, that waits to be seen. But, you know, he was a pole man at the weekend. So yeah. there is something there from him. Yeah, and uh, I think it's also, it, it seems to be teaching people um, interesting racing skills at least um actually managing a race uh also in terms of um uh, you know getting more out of a bike because the bikes are so extremely limited you actually have to find the speed in yourself rather than in the um uh rather than from the bike and there's not a lot that you can actually do with the bike yeah it's pretty much is just a road bike with a race fairing on it and, and uh, maybe a couple of other changes to it but uh, i think for me they definitely need to make a step forward with the bike as well though because it's it's too far off the pace of anything that you can jump onto. Yeah. So a lot of the lessons that you learn in this class may not really be all that relevant. The lines you're taking even around tracks are, aren't going to be as relevant. So I think that that's something that they're probably going to have to look at is just allowing some sort of tuning on the bikes long term. But, you know, it is the first year of the class. So all things considered, it's actually been 
pretty good. Right. Well, I think that wraps up the um, World Superbike talk. Thanks very much, Steve. That's been uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to talk to you about motorbikes. Um, uh, always a great pleasure. Um, uh, hopefully, we can catch up with you again sometime after Donington. Yeah. Well, after Donington, it's straight to the TT for myself, and uh, obviously. TT Tony Goldsmith will be there as well so myself and Tom will have a, a fun couple of weeks of looking at motorbikes on the greatest track in the world well trying to watch them as they whiz past you at extraordinarily high speeds I should imagine hopefully you uh, uh, you and uh, Tony will sit down for a chat over the couple of weeks and send it off uh, to uh, entertain uh, uh, entertain the Paddock Pass podcast and listeners I'd say that there's a good chance that that will be the case David your pints may be involved I, uh, I suspect certainly in the case of tony right um thank you for listening to the paddock pass podcast uh remember to follow us on twitter at paddock pass pod and uh, facebook uh, facebook.com paddock pass podcast do make sure that you leave us a review or, and a rating on itunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast from because that really helps other fans to find the show and thank you very much for listening All right. Well, maybe we could talk. Uh, maybe we could talk about that because the, the thing is, I mean, uh, the thing that I like to talk about is some. Um, uh, um, uh, oh, hang on, wait a minute. Shit, I'm pressing the wrong button. Shit, I've got to press the right fucking button. Okay, I'm recording now.